in Matthew chapter 15. We'll be looking at the last part of, uh, last half of the book of, of uh, Matthew chapter 15. What we're seeing in the book of Matthew is uh, we've seen this progression where Israel's religious faith had become incredibly rigid. Remember we talked about the Pharisees, the scribes, and, and people like the Sadducees. They had all kinds of laws. These, they put these fences around the, the law to, to kind of help them uh, protect them, so to speak, from breaking God's law. And it, it just become huge, a mammoth, a gigantic. Uh, really, nobody could keep it. The Pharisaical religious system had become far removed from the original purpose of God's laws that He had put in the Old Testament. And so as a result, the people were tied to meaningless repetition. We saw uh, last week in the early part of Matthew 15 that this, this law of washing your hands before and after you ate. You know, it's a wise thing to do, but they, they criticized Jesus' disciples for not doing this. And they experienced no personal relationship with God. It was just all external And so John the Baptist had played the funeral song. Jesus had played the flute. We saw that earlier in Matthew. But there was really no movement in the nation as a whole. However, Jesus, as we see here, he's about to move away from Israel. He's moving away from these false traditions. He was looking for people of faith. And in all the places he would find it, he found it in Gentile territory. Non-Jewish territory. That's where he was going to find great faith. Let's start here in Matthew 15, verse 21. We see the, the king shows compassion to a Gentile woman. Look at uh, verse 21. We have the setting here in verse 21. It says that Jesus went away from there. Well, you have, where's the there? You have to look at the preceding context. Uh, he's in Jewish territory uh, at that moment. And so he went away from this Jewish territory and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So until this time, Jesus had carried on most of his ministry around the, that, uh, particularly the, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the region of Galilee. You can see the dotted lines around the region of Galilee there. But now what Jesus is doing, he's, he's moving away from Galilee, which is a Jewish territory, into a non-Jewish territory. In fact, you can see, no, don't go, if you, you can see Tyre way up there on the, the top, the northwest side, right next to the Mediterranean Sea. And so he, he went away because of this rapidly mounting pressure that was facing Jesus. And you say, well, why, why did he do this? Well, he did it for several reasons. Uh, I'll give you at least three. Number one, he was under pressure from the multitudes who were just constantly following him and wouldn't leave him alone. I mean, he, he gets in a boat and goes across the sea and people go and follow him. He, he, he can't be alone. And, and, the, and part of the problem was these people were convinced that he was the Messiah. And you say, is that a problem? Well, yeah, in some ways, because... Um, while they recognized that some of these people recognized Jesus was the Messiah, they had a wrong view of what the Messiah was supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. 
And some of the time they wanted to force him into doing something that Jesus didn't want to do, at least not at that point in time. And so they were wrong about the kind of Messiah that he had come to be. Remember, he said in chapter 1, verse 21, he had come, he had come to save his people from their sin. The problem was they expected him to deliver them from the oppressive Romans <laughs> and people, the cronies of the Romans like King Herod. So they wanted him to usher in this unending period of political freedom and material prosperity. But that's not why he came in his first coming. A second reason why he may have moved into Gentile territory was Jesus was under pressure from uh, possible arrest and execution by King Herod. Remember, King Herod had taken John the Baptist and had him executed. And we saw in chapter 14 that King Herod thought that uh, Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. And if you know anything about King Herod, he uh, he didn't like anybody as a potential threat to his throne. And so he'd just, he'd kill family and friends and it didn't mean anything to him. He just wanted to protect his his reign. So there may have been, that may have been a reason why Jesus moved. A third reason is that the greatest pressure was from the religious leaders of particularly from Jerusalem and the outlying areas as well. And so the scribes and the Pharisees had already determined, we, we saw in chapter 12, they already determined they were going to kill Jesus. They didn't like him. They wanted to destroy him. And after he rebuked the, the delegation from Jerusalem there in, in the beginning of chapter 15, uh, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not how you're going to win and influence friends, is it? And so this delegation from Jerusalem was really humbled and humiliated and embarrassed. In fact, they were scandalized uh, by what Jesus said about them and their man-made traditions. Therefore, Jesus withdrew from Galilee and he travels northwest uh, into the district of Tyre and Sidon. You'll see in the next uh, map there, the the red letters there is uh, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, And so it's obviously out of the land of Israel. Uh, he's gone into non-Jewish territory, which we often call Greek or Gentile territory. He's now beyond the jurisdiction of King Herod. And he is he's outside those spying eyes of the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, you can see it's quite a, quite a ways from the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, uh, from the reading I've done, many estimate he would have been up there in that territory for at least a month and possibly longer. The district of Tyre and Sidon was the Gentile territory of ancient Phoenicia. It's, it's an area that's now in southern Lebanon. Uh, as you can see, it's also on the eastern uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea. More importantly, though, why is Jesus doing this? I mean, well, one of the things I think Jesus wants to do is he wants to gain some time to be alone with his disciples. He wants to prepare them for their mission and prepare them for what's to come, of course, we're getting to the climax of the book of Matthew. Well, it's actually a little ways away, isn't it? But when Christ is going to die and he's going to rise again, he's going to ascend to heaven. And he wants to prepare these apostles for their ministry. The problem was Galilee really afforded no privacy. And, of course, it had many dangers. But Jesus, if you know anything about Jesus, he's not withdrawing just out of fear. Jesus wasn't afraid of King Herod. He wasn't afraid of the religious leaders. In fact, the Bible says uh, 
uh, later on, he, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what his purpose was. He knew he was, death was going to happen. He wasn't afraid of death. And so when the time came for him to face death, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem right into the heart of the lion's den, so to speak. So as we study this text, we need to remember that the gospel came uh, through the Jews. And, and it first came to the Jews. It was never intended to be only for them. Yes, they were God's special chosen people, but they were to be a lighthouse to all the nations. And in fact, in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, it, it said that through Abraham and his seed, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Of course, that was primarily through Jesus Christ. The Bible says the gospel in, in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Greek being everybody who is non-Jew. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is to make disciples not just of Israel, but of all nations. Interesting enough, Acts 1 says that we're to be witnesses to uh, beginning in Jerusalem, but spreading out from Jerusalem, even going to the remotest part of the earth. That's always been God's plan. So Israel is the channel through which the gospel would be carried to the entire world. Well, in this passage, Jesus goes up into this region of Tyre and Sidon, as you see in verse 21, but he has an encounter with an incredible Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman. And so we're about to look at this Canaanite woman. In fact, she's called a Canaanite woman, interestingly enough. And uh, So let me just tell you something about her. She was a descendant of a people God had commanded Israel to conquer and utterly destroy in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So as far as we know, she had no heritage of God's Word. She didn't have Scripture. She didn't have God's blessing. Uh, there, there was no tabernacle, no temple. There was no priesthood. There was no sacrifices. None of those blessings that Israel had. Therefore, because she believed so much relative to the little revelation, Jesus actually called her a woman of great faith. We'll see that in just a moment. And from her story, I want us to see some qualities of great faith. In fact, we'll talk about five general qualities that mark all great faith, not just her faith, but but hopefully this is this is something that that is who you are. If not, it's something that we should all pray that God would make us to be. Number one, we see that great faith is repentant. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region, that, that region of Tyre and Sidon, came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David! My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So notice the, the first part of verse 22. She's crying out, Have mercy on me! This Canaanite woman was, remember, you need to understand, she's She's probably an idolater. Well, she's clearly an idolater. She probably worshipped uh, multiple pagan heathen deities. And so the fact that she's coming to Jesus is indicating something. As far as we know, it's she's probably disillusioned with the idolatry and the immoral wickedness that characterized the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
And so in turning to Jesus, in even just crying out to Jesus saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, is, is showing incredible faith. She's turning from the way of sin to the way of God. She's turning from idolatry to Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of repentance. You need to understand repentance is, don't, don't just think of it as, as, you know, confessing, you know, individual sins. It's, it, it's a whole change of mind, which ends up, ends up being a change of your whole lifestyle. This woman had great faith because her faith was repentant. The woman's plea, by the way, is further proof of her penitence. She knew she didn't deserve Jesus' help. Uh, she knew that she was unworthy of Jesus and that her only hope for undeserved forgiveness was in His gracious mercy, which is why she's crying out to Him, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And so by definition, then, the person who asks for mercy asks for something that's undeserved. That's what mercy is. It's undeserved favor. This woman didn't come demanding, but she's pleading, pleading, begging, have mercy on me. And so she didn't ask for Jesus' help on the basis of her own goodness. She's not saying, you know, hey, I'm such a wonderful person. You know, Jesus, King Jesus, you can't live without me. No, she's not doing anything remotely close to that. It's, it's only on the basis of Jesus' goodness that she's coming. So number one, great faith is repented. Number two, great faith is directed always at the right object. Always. Notice the object of her faith. It, again, verse 22, she's crying out to the Lord, the son of David. <laughs> and then she says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. There's a lot of rubbish that's portrayed today about faith, okay? So let me just be clear here. It is unbelievably foolish to put ultimate trust in something or someone you know nothing about. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. That's foolishness. That sort of faith is essentially faith in faith, which is to say that there is no faith at all. Let me give you a silly example. To jump out of an airplane with a parachute is some sort of an act of faith, right? If you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, you're putting your your trust in the parachute that it's it's going to work and it's going to save your life, right? Well, that's what most people do anyway. But if you jump out of the airplane without a parachute, we would call that stupidity or foolishness, right? To jump without a parachute, and, and, and if you're saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to believe... I'm going to believe that I'm going to live is an act of stupidity. To say, to say no more than, hey, you know, I believe in love, or I believe in just believing, or I believe in faith, or I just believe it's all going to work out in the end, that is foolish faith. And it's pointless, and it's powerless. Because it has the wrong object. The object of the faith is the important part, not your faith. So for faith, for faith to have power, it, it has to be placed in a trustworthy object. Well, this Canaanite woman, she turned her back on her idols and she placed her faith, notice, in the Lord, the son of David. 
clearly a, a messianic title that uh, Matthew uses several times. Number three, great faith is reverent. Great faith is reverent. So despite her pagan background, her background of, of heathen, idol worship, she'd heard somehow of the Jews coming Messiah. She heard that uh, he was called the son of David. By the way, you'll see that chapter 1 of Matthew. And so she reverently addressed Jesus as her sovereign, all-powerful Lord. You see that in verse 22? She calls him Lord. She treated him with both dignity and expectancy. She expected something to happen. So she's showing dignity as she should to the Lord, her master, but she was expecting this Lord to heal her daughter. So after what happened to Jesus in in Jewish territory, which was rather irreverent treatment, was it not? The, the Jewish leaders, uh, like scribes and the Pharisees, were very irreverent to Jesus. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that Jesus must have been refreshed to see such great faith from somebody who had so little revelation. Although she didn't yet understand the full meaning of Christ's lordship, <laughs> who really does, uh, she came with a sense of awe and wonder. This woman loved her daughter, of course, which is why she's you know, coming to Jesus. And she came to the only source of help that she knew of. Obviously, the idols were powerless. They couldn't heal. Her faith was great because she turned from uh, faith in those false gods. She turned from her faith in those dumb idols, powerless pagan deities, to faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, great faith is persistent. It's persistent. Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Wow. Amazing statements there. Great faith does not give up. Great faith is not deterred by obstacles. It's not uh, not deterred by any setbacks or roadblocks or disappointments. Great faith perseveres. So what does Jesus do here? Jesus uh, responds in an interesting way. I mean, first of all, he just doesn't even respond, right? He doesn't say anything. What was Jesus doing here? Now, some people look at this and say, man, that's kind of rude of Jesus to do that. Well, Jesus isn't rude, all right? In fact, we're going to see later on, Jesus had great compassion even on the non-Jews. He had great compassion on this woman as well. And so Jesus, one of the things he's doing here is he's testing the faith of this woman. He's setting up a series of barriers to find out, is she real? Is her faith real? Now, some people have to struggle against doubts. It, you've probably done that in your own life. You've struggled various doubts in your life against Maybe the arguments of friends, or maybe you've read uh, the arguments in books or magazines, or you, you've heard various preachers over the years, and you, you've had to struggle with various doubts in your own mind. Others struggle to believe because they've never actually heard the gospel clearly uh, presented to them. There's a lot of false gospels out there. Paul talked about that in Galatians chapter 1. But this woman had had barriers that were placed in her way, and notice 
where the barriers are coming from. They're coming from Jesus Christ himself. Well, on the surface, it may appear to you that Jesus is being insensitive. Maybe you might even think Jesus is being rude. But Jesus did nothing that was unloving, nothing that that was without divine purpose. He always had a purpose in mind. He had had enough of this pretend faith of, of the Jews. They come and they, they want to get healed of this or that, and, and then they go away and just re, you know return back to normal. He'd had enough of that. He'd had enough of these people who were selfish and got what they wanted from him and then just left. And so he puts up barriers here, purposely puts barriers in the way. He wanted to test this woman's faith, and he wanted to bring her faith to full fruition, full flower. He put up the barriers not to keep her away, but instead he's actually drawing her to himself. That's one of the purposes. But he also wants to distinguish between the genuine and the superficial. Remember the story uh, in, in chapter 14, the parable of the soils? Jesus is constantly showing what someone's heart is really like. Or is, is it just superficial? Or is it genuine? Something that actually bears fruit. Jesus is showing this woman is bearing fruit. She's on the good soil. But he also used the occasion to show the disciples and the value of persistent faith. Interestingly enough, uh, the very next chapter, we're going to see an amazing statement by the Apostle Peter declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think Jesus is using this time in, in Gentile, non-Jewish territory to show who He is. And he's building this faith in them. He's showing the disciples the value of persistent faith. He, he wants to distinguish between what is genuine and what is superficial. And so he's purposely putting these barriers up. And so only someone who is genuine, someone who is persistent, can then hurdle over those barriers and come to Christ. Well, the last... One we need to look at here is that great faith is humble. Great faith is humble. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Wow. An amazing statement. She does even what, what the Pharisees and the scribes dared not do. She responds with, with humility and great faith. Interestingly enough, that word knelt in your Bible there literally means to prostrate oneself. It, it's often frequently used in your Bible uh, and, and sometimes even translated as worship. So picture someone falling on their face before the Lord. So whether or not the woman, uh, the woman's bowing down was actually intended to be worship is not the point, okay? But it is clearly an act of humility. She is humbling herself before the Lord Jesus Christ. She's throwing herself at Jesus' feet, pleading, desperately pleading, Lord, help me. She knew she was sinful. She knew that she was unworthy of anything that Jesus had to offer. She was willing to concede, as you, as you can see in her passage here, that uh, she was she was not deserving of anything that she could get from a Jew. 
And in doing so, she demonstrated a complete absence of pride, uh, of self-reliance and self-righteousness that, that characterized most of the Jews. She was willing to settle, as you can see here uh, in verse 26, she's, she's willing to settle, or in verse 27, she's willing to settle even for crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. She knew that even the crumbs would be enough to meet her needs. A tiny leftover of Jesus' power could heal her daughter. That's what the kind of faith that she had. Now you need to remember that although Jesus' primary mission uh, during His time when He was on earth was primarily to the Jews, the crumbs of the Gospel, in fact, did fall from their table, so to speak, even to the non-Jews. In fact, uh, even people like this Canaanite, Gentile, non-Jewish woman found Jesus to be the true bread of life. What's the Lord's response? Well, look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Notice the word instantly. So Jesus was, of course, pleased with the woman's response. And he granted her wish, was, of course, the healing of her daughter. And this is, uh, this isn't what a lot of so-called healings that happen today. No, this, this was instant. Jesus didn't have to touch her. He didn't have to do any incantations. He didn't have to pray. He didn't have to do anything. He just says, and he's not even there, and it happens, and it's instant. Amazing power. Well, in our next part of this story, this, this event carries on. We see that the king shows compassion to non-Jews as, um, but he moves into a different territory, but, but the same theme is, is going to happen again. We see Jesus' compassion. Look at verse 29. Jesus went on from there, those, the region up in Tyre and Sidon, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Look at verse 32. Because in verse 32 we have our theme that 
It's kind of unifying these two events here. Notice Jesus says, I have compassion. It's an interesting word, compassion. Literally means to be moved in one's inward parts. The ancients from long ago considered uh, your inward parts to be the seat of your emotions. And that kind of carried over into Jesus' day and beyond Jesus' day. And so according to one definition, compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the pain and remove its cause. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here, don't we? Jesus had compassion for spiritual needs, of course. But notice, you see, starting in verse 29, we we also see Jesus had compassion for people's physical needs as well. The spiritual needs were eternal in their consequences. Of course, those are by far more important. I mean, after all, the Bible says, what does it profit a man if he even gains the whole world and loses his own soul? But he also had compassion for their physical afflictions, and we see him showing compassion for their physical afflictions as well as their need for food. Now, some people have thought, This is so awesome that the God of Scripture is a God of compassion. He suffers with people, he feels their pain and their sorrow, and seeks to alleviate it. Why? Because he deeply cares for their welfare and happiness. Where is Jesus? The Bible says he was in the region of Decapolis. The region of Decapolis was on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, directly south of the modern Golan Heights. Decapolis means ten cities, from the Greek deca, which means ten, and polis, which means city. And it derived its name from the ten city-states located within its boundaries. From Jesus' ministry to the Gentile crowd in the Decapolis, a number of important lessons can be learned. First, we learn that Jesus is very powerful. Because only God can create, only God could have multiplied those seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Just as he had created healthy tissues to replace diseased ones, whole limbs to replace deformed and missing ones, and seeing eyes to replace blind ones, he also created a superabundance of food to replace a little. What was the source? Jesus performed miracles in his own name and power because he was the source of the power. He did not heal, deliver, raise the dead, and multiply food as God's agent, but as God. Second, Jesus set himself totally apart from self-proclaimed divine healers of past years and modern times. How? He cured diseases and restored hearing and sight and restored those who were maimed and sometimes completely without parts of the body. You look in vain among modern-day healers for verified accounts of anyone who was given an arm, leg, or eye to replace one that was missing. Their cures are extremely minor compared to those the Lord performed during the three years of his earthly ministry. God is still capable of sovereignly healing the most hopeless disease and of creating new limbs where there are none. But the only age of healing in this church in the church was the time of authenticating the Messiah himself and of his word through the apostles. 
Once those purposes were accomplished, the gift of miracles ceased. Third, we learn that the goal of ministry is worship. Although most, if not all, of the multitudes in Decapolis were pagan Gentiles, when they saw Jesus' healing power, they were astonished beyond measure and glorified the God of Israel, verse 31 says. Witnessing such a divine display demanded much more than awe. It demanded reverential worship. Their worship was Jesus' supreme goal. He had unqualified compassion to heal their broken bodies and to fill their empty stomachs. But he was infinitely more concerned that he could also save their souls from eternal damnation and make them citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Christ's followers are likewise called to minister not only to people's physical and temporal needs, but to lead them to glorify God. The goal of evangelism and of Christian living is to worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers, John 4.23 says. How can you glorify God? Only when your devotion to the Lord is sincere and daily living consistently Christ-like will God be glorified. That is an especially important lesson for our day, in which self-love and self-satisfaction have become accepted and advertised even in the church. We're tempted to offer the gospel simply for what it can do for a person. Instead, we need to turn from self to God and from our own priorities to His. We are tempted to make the way of salvation seem wide, although the Lord says it is narrow. We are tempted to make the Christian life appear easy, although Jesus declared that He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, and that only he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Number four. This event teaches the necessity of relying on God's resources. Like the disciples, we are usable to the Lord when we acknowledge our own lack of resources and turn to Him. Whatever we may have in ourselves is never enough to meet the needs of others or to accomplish anything for God. The Bible says in James 1, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Fifth, we learn from this event that God's resources are never diminished because he has an infinite capacity to create. He did not need the seven loaves and few fish in order to feed the multitude. He could just as easily have made the food from nothing, just as he created the entire universe from nothing. He used the loaves and fish in order to involve the disciples and to help teach them to give what they had into his care. The Bible says in Luke 6, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure will be measured to you in return. God's people would never lack resources to do what he calls them to do if they trusted that promise. Sixth, we learn that the Lord's servants are useful. Although the Lord is able to do his work without us, he chooses to do it through us. He did not need the disciples' help to distribute the food. He could have done that in an instant. 
what took them several hours to do. But in his infinite wisdom and mercy, God chooses to use human instruments to do his work of carrying the gospel to the world and of ministering to its needs. Seventh, we learn that God gives generously. The Bible says, in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, Luke 6.38. Everyone on the mountainside ate until he was completely satisfied. There was even more than enough, so that seven large baskets of food were left over. Eighth, we learn that spiritual investment always rewards. When the disciples gave all they had to Jesus and then helped him give it away to others, they had seven full baskets remaining for themselves. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. That's from chapter 9, verse 6. Ninth, we learn that Jesus' compassion is limitless. He has compassion for all our needs, including eternal, lifetime, and daily needs. He has compassion on Jews and on non-Jews, on the severely afflicted and the merely hungry. So following the example of our Lord, the Bible says we are to do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Galatians 6.10 What have we learned today? We've learned that King Jesus is compassionate. We've seen God's love burst the borders of Israel. For our day, that means that all peoples of the world are special objects of redemptive grace. These people include the despised and the marginalized, Palestinians as well as Israelis, Sunnis and Shiites, Pakiha and Maori, everyone. The love and grace of God mean the end of tribalism and a new love between groups that have been characterized by ethnic hatred. We must keep Romans 1.16 in mind, which says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As a whole, Matthew does not foresee a replacement theology in which Gentile mission replaces Jewish mission. There is still a place for Jewish evangelism in the worldwide mission. They are still the chosen people of God. And it is only by God's mercy that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have been allowed to join them as objects of divine grace. May we never forget that God is compassionate.